Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James, the book of James chapter 2. A word for aspiring preachers or pastors who may be in the room that I haven't met yet, or keep this in mind if you, you know of somebody who is not here but calls our church home. Um, each year we host a preaching cohort. It's a once a month class on a Sunday afternoon. It's a group of about six to eight of us. Those who are, we say, structuring their life in the direction of pastoring, vocational teaching and preaching. Um, And we meet for an hour to discuss a chapter in a book on preaching we've read, to share work on a text we've studied and prepared for, and then to hear one brother preach. Uh, We've done this for about five years. It is an immensely encouraging time. It is a bit intimidating for those who might be new to it, but it's important that our church does this. And if you plan and desire to give your life to vocational pastoring for the church's sake, then I would love to know about you. Maybe you're new to our church. Maybe you're in college and you're kind of aimed there. You don't have to be dead sure of where you're headed for inclusion in this group, but I would like to talk to you. And if you know of somebody, maybe college students, who is still rummaging around town for a church and they haven't settled, well, you need to tell them to settle down in a church soon enough, um, but you could also have them visit here if they're still uh, uncommitted. Just a heads up and be in prayer for our preaching cohort for this year. Well, as we come to our text, a question, what is the first mark of an unhealthy church. What's the first mark of an unhealthy church? Or at least how would James have answered that for the church to whom he was writing? Let us listen in now, and as we do, of course, it's a word for us just the same. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality. As those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to become rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The first chapter of the book of James was James's introduction. He began with that familiar, memorable, and difficult command, count it all joy when you experience various trials. Why? Because those trials produce steadfastness, which produces completeness, perfection, that we might lack nothing. We're using the language of wholeness in this series. God is putting us together, and he's even doing that through our our trials. There's a reason why we can count them as all joy. 
quite a tall order, but it is a very great promise that he is at work in them, all of them. Be encouraged. He ended his first chapter on a much more practical note. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he's getting as practical as the tongue in your mouth, words, but he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now he's getting it down to a sentence to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true religion is keeping your tongue, it's visiting orphans and widows, and it's keeping yourself unstained from the world. That verse doesn't hang there all by itself. It comes at the end of that chapter. But it's where James has moved from the invisible work that God is doing in our hearts to the fruit of that invisible work in love for neighbor in self-control with the tongue and with separation in a biblical fashion from the world. We can't be taken out of it, of course, until Christ comes. Well, here in James 2, he takes up his first big extended theme. Now, last week we said those verses I just read are a kind of an outline. They're a summary of his introduction and they're an outline of the rest of the book. He's going to spend a lot of time addressing this matter of the tongue, for anger, quarrels, and jealousy are all a problem in this church, and the tongue is kind of right at the middle of that problem. He'll deal with the church's words. Um, he says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's just an example of uh, what love for and care for the vulnerable looks like. And we'll find out this morning in this text why he put that in his list. And then the third thing, uh, remain unstained from the world. He'll spend a good amount of time expanding on that before the book is done. He picks up that second theme here first, though, as he gets into the body of his letter in chapter 2. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Well, in this, this case, he's speaking of the poor, the vulnerable, and the church's posture toward the poor and the vulnerable. That matter of poverty is merely an example of a larger problem of partiality. The church is valuing people according to the world's uh, currency. Let's answer that question as we begin now. What is partiality? That is the word I'm choosing to hold the whole section together. He begins, my brothers, show no partiality. He goes on through verse 7. At verse 8 through 13, it sounds like he's made his way to an entirely different topic, the law. Every verse from 8 to 13 mentions the law. But look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. The reason he's bringing up this matter of the law is not because he's moving on to another topic. Wrong one out, onto the next. He's developing his argument. And he's persuading us as to the incompatibility of partiality with gospel Christianity. So what is partiality? He gives us that command there, show no partiality, but then he, he gives us an illustration. Uh, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, okay, so, so that man comes in, but then a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, go ahead and sit here and have a good place, and you say to the poor man, stand over there in the corner or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not shown partiality? He illustrates it, it for, for them. Now, partiality, or we could use the word favoritism, it doesn't mean you don't see anything when someone walks in. So uh, an, an elderly individual comes to our church on a Sunday morning from the community, and, and they're new here. We don't we don't, one, pretend we don't know they're new uh, when we don't recognize them, and two, we don't pretend they aren't walking with a cane and might need help to a fine seat. So uh, there's a certain kind of attentiveness and consideration that is wholly Christian and appropriate and a matter of hospitality. That's not what he's addressing here. What, he is, he addre what is he addressing then? Impartiality. Well, it's making value judgments about people based on appearances and worldly advantage. 
making value judgments about people based on appearances and worldly advantage. So notice here, he emphasizes what they're wearing. You can kind of see that. That's a matter of appearances. And those appearances are giving off an indication as to how valuable they are to us. And that value system they're operating on is the one they've received from the world. So these are folks with some money. It's good to have money. It can come from all kinds of places, often hard work. Almost doesn't matter where it came from, as long as it didn't come from blood or stealing. Uh, the issue isn't money and the wealthy here. Um, we'll get into that in a moment. The issue is uh, this church making a judgment about those individuals based on their appearance according to worldly advantage. Now, James is inviting us to think on this for a little bit, because he's not going to give every possible illustration. He says, show no partiality. It's plural. So there's different ways to show partiality. There are different illustrations that he might have offered. Presumably, he offers this one because it's a problem for this church. It seems that it is the case. Maybe this exact thing has happened. Maybe this exact thing has not happened. His readers could sure imagine it happening. It, it fits with the nature of that church and the churches that he's writing to. So what illustrations might we offer for ourselves? What illustrations might we hear if this was written directly to us? And for help with that, we might ask, well, what does our world value at the moment, in our time and in our place? Well, wealth is always there, always a consideration, always something that our culture and age values. It's not peculiar to James's day. We can fall to that too. Um, I don't believe we're a church where somebody walks in with especially nice clothes and we think, ooh, we got to land them to be a member. Maybe they could help us with what we're trying to accomplish or a building we're working on or a renovation. Now, that may be more of a temptation for those in leadership who are thinking about budget in the future and plans. And maybe it's not so much in they're being welcome, but in offering a position of leadership or of, of not dealing with an issue of sin and discipline because we don't want to set them off because of their value they bring because of the money that they have. So on the one hand, I don't think this is a first problem for us. On the other hand, we have to be careful. Uh, the right person in the room and the right circumstance and the right team might hesitate to be impartial with a member or someone getting to know our church on account of what they bring to the table financially. And let that not be the case for us. I have no idea what you make or what you give. Now, the Lord does, and it is a matter of discipleship. Maybe someone should, um, but I don't, so don't worry about me. This is not hard for me. Social skills. Meet someone new, and what do you say about them when you go home or, or to another church member when you're talking about them later in the day at shepherding group? Oh, did you meet John and Sue? Uh, so friendly. Now, that's a good way to commend their character. Um, oh, I think they'd really be liked around here. Hmm. We're starting to make a comment about how much we might like them around here, that we like people who are sociable and connecty and can remember a name, and that's all very good, but it's possible to value that in a worldly way. Or those who are socially networked, those who know people in town, who have connections, those who have gifts and abilities. Oh, they seem like a very gifted individual. Ooh, they can help us out with sound in the back of the room. For what it's worth, I am very, and this is a matter of uh, pastoral practice, very slow to make much of somebody's skills that they may bring to the church. 
Somebody may seem like a good fit, and it may be obvious where they would slot early on. Um, but it must be of no factor for us that somebody has um, uh, you know, a certain certification. They can help us out with AC units and save us some money around here. <laughs> or that they're a musician with a certain skill, and so I meet them in town, and I'm kind of talking them into coming to our church. It has never happened. And so you can know that you are valuable here in your church, not for a particular skill that you have that you developed starting in fifth grade, without which maybe you wouldn't be of any interest to us around here. No, it's not the case. We can value social skills, uh, gifts and abilities, an interesting life. Ooh, they're so interesting. Uh, you should hear about what, they, what they've been busy doing in the places that they've gone. I'm so glad we've got a church with so many interesting people. Education. A, a good family. Now, we should pray that the Lord keeps families together in our community and rejoice over families that are intact and celebrate that. And be glad for a godly family that moves to town to find our church and to find a home here. It's not nothing. But are we excited about a good family joining our church in a way that colors the way we talk about somebody that we, that we met? Or maybe just youthfulness. And that would come out in excitement about somebody with a lot of energy and and excitement themselves, and they're not, they don't have a failing body, and they aren't slow, and they aren't past their prime. This is awfully sneaky. Some of this might need some nuance, but you know, James is happy not to offer all the nuance he might offer. So let me just say these suggestions I've offered you, they're evil thoughts. They're evil thoughts, and they put us in the place of God as judge, measuring the value of another person, another Christian, a visitor to our church, a person for leadership, according to measures and metrics that God does not himself use. And there is hardly anything more despicable. There's one that's particularly popular today, as I see in my list, that I forgot that I don't want to forget. And that is that of color. Oh, maybe 50, 70 years ago, somebody might show up of a different color than the majority of the church, and that would be a matter of discounting their value. But these days, our culture doesn't so much value similarity in color, I'm using that superficial matter of appearance, as it is a matter of diversity. And so a church can be anxious about its color palette, that it's too white or too Hispanic, if that's a thing over in a Hispanic church. And there are matters of culture and, and language and, and ways that mean folks may collect together in culture. It's not wrong for a Spanish-speaking church, for example, to gather as a Spanish-speaking church. And often when a church has a lot of diversity, it's actually... Uh, in appearance only for the broader, the cultures within the surrounding region that appear to be represented in the church have been merely flattened out as much as been given up down a generation or two from one family's immigration to our country. But our, our age, the spirit of the age, is obsessed with the matter of color palette so that maybe in your workplace... Um, the staff page has to have enough diversity in order to satisfy this client or to land that deal or to stay in this club or with that certification. And this matter of anxiety over color palette is an ungodly and evil matter in the church. There is a kind of partiality that many churches were guilty of many years ago and a reverse partiality that is no less partiality that might value somebody that walks in that's brown or black or Hispanic more than just another white person, for example. And let us be a church that never values one over another on the count of a color presentation. And here's the great advantage to that for all of us and for all of our visitors and anyone we may evangelize and anyone we may appoint to leadership. 
Within the context of this church, no one will ever wonder, and let it be said, no one will ever wonder if they received that smile or that welcome or that invitation into a home or that tap on the shoulder to consider a position of leadership on the count of their color. And what that means is not that now people will not be valued when they walk into our church. No, the call of this passage is that we would value everybody, show hospitality to everyone, for everyone who darkens our door is an individual made in the image of God. And any individual who is made a member here and identifies with Christ and whom we identify as a a brother or sister is a co-heir with Christ in his kingdom. And that kingdom is diverse in many, many ways. But let us be careful concerning the spirit of the age. It's a warning to us all. Well, James has brought up this matter of partiality. Show no partiality. If you do, you're committing sin. It should have us on edge to wonder how we might be committing partiality. He gives this in the context of what appears to be a church gathering. I presume we may just as well apply it in other settings, maybe to evangelism, uh, to welcome at the front door, to welcome into membership for the life of our church, say in the configuration of shepherding groups, so we can put people together that make sense, um, but like with like with like doesn't make sense biblically or in leadership, as I've mentioned, as if we were to have leadership quotas, and we will never have those. So what is partiality? Oh, it is such an important subject, and it is a stern command He uses the language of evil thoughts here. We've answered the question, what is partiality? Now I want to offer some reasons, two reasons to reject favoritism. I'll use some words interchangeably this morning. Two reasons to reject favoritism. Most of this passage is biblical and theological argumentation, which should tell you something. A church that is marked Uh, by the godless sin of favoritism is a church that has a biblical problem in its vision of God, a theological problem in its vision of God. And he'll make such arguments in the passage that we have. I'll offer the two. And they'll, they'll sound awfully theological, more than maybe the page sounded but uh, hopefully they'll sink in. By dividing our loyalties in the first place, partiality divides our very soul. By dividing our loyalties, partiality divides our very souls. Let's meditate on that word loyalties. Verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And under the translation here, it's just this word of glory. The uh, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ of glory. It's as though he could have written without writing that and made his point just the same. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, In other words, for partiality is incompatible with our faith in Jesus Christ. But he adds of glory, or who is the Lord of glory. I presume he has added that because this is a church that is struggling with, or needs to at least struggle with, its competing glories. There is a kind of glory that this church is admiring and affirming and desiring and seeking. And it is a glory as of from the world as from great wealth. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, Moses said to God, Please show me your glory. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord and passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He showed Moses his glory as he passed by him and the trail of his glory was visible to Moses. Moses, remember, couldn't see it so directly because he would die because he's a sinner. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. And it is a glory that we can only taste and that we will know fully when we see him perfectly one day. He is the Lord of glory, and they are dealing with a competition of glories in their heart and in their church. Let us be a church that glories in Jesus and not in skills or wealth or sociability or credentials or education or youthfulness or color or gifts and abilities. Let us glory in Jesus. And this is not too far from what Jesus was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Let no no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. See, James is just applying the scriptures to his readers. He is drawing out what that means for them and what that means also for us. Loyalties. They have split loyalties. Partiality reflects a matter of split loyalties. We profess and confess the faith in Jesus Christ, but then we honor and esteem and seek that which is valuable in this world, and it betrays an inconsistency in the heart, a splitness of our loyalties. Two kingdoms are also of concern here. Listen, my beloved brothers, in verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? Heirs of the kingdom. Now, if we were to zoom out and look at the Bible's teaching on rich and poor, we would see that wealth itself is not the problem, but Great wealth can be corrupting, and often great wealth is accrued in the wrong way, or it actually corrupts the person who has it, makes them to depend on themselves and not on the Lord. And so James is not qualifying himself here, but I'm qualifying it in the broader picture. In the context of this local church and these churches, it was almost strictly the case that the Christians were poor. And the very wealthy in these communities were corrupt in ways that the wealthy are not always corrupt. But they were corrupt toward these Christians in taking them to court, in seizing their property, perhaps with all but a, uh, on the basis of only a late mortgage payment, for example, seizing property putting them in dire circumstances. The Christians in that community largely impoverished, dealing with those who are especially wealthy, who are also at the same time corrupt, and to some extent their wealth has corrupted them. And that's assumed here in verse 6, that you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now what is going on here? Why would they show favoritism to the wealthy who might show up in their church. And I presume right here, this is not Christians who are dragging them into court. Why would they show favoritism, though, who those who might darken their door who are wealthy? Is it from a heart of love and gospel compassion for those enslaved to the sin of uh, money worship? No, it's not. There's some type of self-interest here. I take it. There is a servile kind of low honoring that they are offering to the wealthy in their community, not not for the wealth that the person can bring to call the standard of the church up and help with the new addition, as it is protection and good graces. See, their oppressors in the community who are seizing and stealing their property may come come into the door on Sunday morning And they think, ooh, good, this is an opportunity to be on the right side of those who are so against us. No. They walk into that building, a sinner like anybody, an image bearer like anybody, and a prospective heir of the kingdom only by faith in the Lord Jesus. 
like anybody. God is impartial that way. And in the context of the church, his value system rules among us. They're showing partiality for their own peculiar reasons. But even Christians, whether it's a public Christian or a lot of us downstream listening to their conversations in in the, the major news outlets of our day, often cozy up to the world that hates them and throw their brothers and sisters under the bus who embarrass them. Let us not be those who speak about Christians in other places or even among us who, whom, whom uh, the wicked in our day consider detestable. Let us not speak about them as though we are em- embarrassed. I think that's what's happening here with this matter of the rich and the oppressed and why they're showing favoritism. And remember, he says, show no partiality, which is to say this can apply in every direction for us, whatever our churches and our peculiar temptations. Two glories, two kingdoms, two names. Verse 7, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Oh, I mean, apparently it's not just that they're taking them to court and seizing their property, but they're actually cursing the God of heaven on purpose so to torture these Christians. Or at least it ought to be that way. And it's neat here what James is doing in speaking of the Lord of glory and heirs of the kingdom and the honorable name by which they're called. It's in a way, he's arguing against their behavior, but he's doing it in a way, I'm giving you a list, two kingdoms, two glories, two honorable, two names. He's actually just esteeming the name by which they're called honorably. He's speaking of the glorious kingdom that they've been brought into. He's speaking of the glory of Jesus. So even as James is pastoring them and confronting them, he is extolling the glory of Jesus and his kingdom and his name in such a way that if he has his way and his prayers are answered, all of our hearts and eyes have been lifted up. In other words, he's pointing us to Jesus even as he's pointing out our sins. He's a good Christian friend to these readers and a good pastor to them. And we can take our cue from him. Two glories, two kingdoms, two names. Split loyalties. Now I said by dividing our loyalties, partiality divides our very souls. Where did I get that? I might have gotten that from the broader book of James, where James will repeatedly speak about the danger of a divided heart, a divided mind, uh, being two-faced, double-minded, he says. But look here in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And he says that at the conclusion of his illustration. He says, the rich person comes in, the poor person comes in, you treat the rich this way and treat the poor this way. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I've, I've looked at that line for some time and thought, what does it mean, made distinctions among yourselves? Because it seems like, of course they have, that's the point of the illustration, and that's what partiality means. And sometimes an author might just repeat himself and, or put something in a different way. But this week, with a little work on this, I've come to a different conclusion um, that this actually does advance his argument in a way that distinctions among yourselves, in other words, you've just made differences among yourselves, does not. I mean, it could be translated different distinctions among yourselves, or it could be translated, have you not made a distinction within yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? And doesn't that match that picture of internal wholeness and coherence and completeness that James is writing and preaching for? That opposite of a divided heart and a double-minded person. Doesn't this behavior mean you've made a division within yourself? You've been inconsistent within your very self? It's the same word that's used in Verse 6 of chapter 1, let him ask in faith with no doubting as one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed. It has an idea of, of wavering. In Mark eleven twenty three, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea 
and does not doubt in his heart, or Acts 10.20, rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation. Speaking of Abraham in Romans 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. You get the idea. It's just a matter of, it be translated different ways, but just as well this way. Have you not then wavered in yourself? Have you not then doubted within yourself? Have you not become divided within yourself between the Lord of glory and your earthly, worldly glory? By dividing our loyalties, partiality divides our very souls and fractures us all the way down. And that's why, at least for this church, this was Mark 1 of their unhealth and their sickness, or at least he gets after it first, after his introduction. Partiality in which a church, let's say facing the front door, welcomes people according to their appearances and what capital they can bring to the church. Financial, with money, social, with color, or whatever. That is an evil thought, and it reflects a division in the heart of the church and a division in the heart of the people, a fracturing of the soul, which is a great sickness indeed. Two glories, two kingdoms, two names. All of that is evident in their and our partiality, and it reflects a fracturing of the soul. The second reason to reject partiality. By dividing God's law, partiality presumes to divide God himself. And you'd say, well, I would never presume to divide God himself. Oh, but by giving yourself a pass on this, on this one, for whatever reason you've cooked up, you are indeed presuming that you can divide God. That's what he's saying here, and it's an important point to make. He spends a whole bunch of verses on it. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, there it is again, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, so he's willing to grant them. Maybe let's say you keep it all, but you fail in this one point, you're guilty of it all. It seems to me they may have quarantined this matter off. They're doing some of the big things right. They're not murdering and not committing adultery. Um, Partiality, maybe if some of them are honest. Some of us are honest. We're a little uncomfortable with it. But how can we afford not to have that individual or that kind of person or more of those kinds of, of people Are you not committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point to come guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Transgressor. Someone who's crossed a boundary. You've crossed the boundary. You are outside of law keeping at that point. You are living against God's. Law, heavens, law. Let's reflect on law and God. What is law? Well, sometimes this term would be used in the New Testament to refer to the law package of the Old Covenant. So think what God gave his people at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, all those other hundreds of commandments that ordered their life. It was a whole covenant. They went together. Uh, Ten Commandments, things like loving the Lord your God with all your heart and not murdering and not committing adultery and not coveting in the heart and all the other laws about what you wear and days of the year and feasts and the sacrificial system, all of that. Sometimes law refers to that. We know from Scripture that Jesus has come to fulfill that law, but not every point within that law is obsolete. For example, he quotes here Leviticus Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You didn't know that came from Leviticus, did you? Yes, it does. It is a summary of the law, along with love for the Lord our God. They go together and naturally, for humans bear the very image of God. 
So here, he tells us what he means by law, the royal law. What is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus didn't let his hearers get off by being overly nuanced about who their neighbor was. It's the one in front of you. And uh, it might be the one in front of you who needs a lot of help. We don't have the same obligation to every human soul on every part of the globe. There's something to say for proximity. There's a lot to say for proximity in that conversation. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. An easy enough test case is when a neighbor walks in our doors on the Lord's day or when we walk by a neighbor in our community. They're all our neighbors. Law. Calls it the royal law. What an honorable way to speak of it. It's the law of heaven's king. What an honor to obey a law like that. Who doesn't want to be under perfect laws? A law from heaven. Oh, that's a good one. We should want to live in a world where everyone keeps those. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a divine law. It comes from God's very mouth. He who said, also said. And so we must keep it. As we have been redeemed by Jesus who fulfilled the old covenant law, he has freed us now to keep such a law as you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The problem with the old covenant law is that it was external on tablets and it couldn't change the internal heart of the person. But God, by His Spirit, has made us new and He's written His law on our hearts so that we're alive to Him and so we're alive and free to love our neighbors. And that's on display among you each week. I see it. He calls it the law of liberty. It's a law we should want to obey, we must obey, and that we're able to obey because He has freed us through the good work, the gospel work, the saving work of Jesus Christ He has made us ever able, free, to obey this kind of command. And that is part of the good news. So that's what it is. Well, how are they tempted to disobey it, and how might we be tempted to disobey it? Well, to break it down into parts. So in their case, they were tempted to to say, well, we've kept the adultery piece and the murder piece. They may be offering them an example, but this is the kind of reasoning they may be, he's anticipating Um, but not the partiality piece. And he's saying, well, you've made a division within the law, and by doing so, you presume that you can divide God himself. Now, did he say that? Yes, he did say that. For he goes and quotes God and uses the language of said. You imagine God speaking. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. It's the same person, in other words. It's the same person who said this, said this, is saying this, love your neighbor and show no partiality. So, so if, you, if you want to cut up the law, you're presuming that you, that you can cut God up into parts too, but you can't do that. So instead of thinking of the law, love your neighbor as yourself with its many implications, those laws as, as like marbles in a jar, you can kind of take one out, but like look at all the ones you're keeping. Uh, it's more like a pane of glass, When you break it, you've broken it. Even if you haven't shattered it, it is now broken. Or maybe a plane illustration, like you've broken glass on a window in an airplane. Now the whole cabin is depressurized. It all goes, you don't have to break all the glasses to have compromised the vehicle. Well, it's like that. They're thinking the wrong way about God. And so we may struggle with the matter of partiality. Remember, James said, we all stumble in many ways. He qualifies his whole letter in that respect. But we can't carve out for ourselves little departments where it doesn't really matter if we obey God over here because we're obeying him over here. You think you can cut God into parts. That's what James is saying. And maybe when you go home, it's some completely other sin besides impartiality. Well, this would apply to you just the same. No, by dividing God's law, partiality presumes that we can divide God himself. We've considered what partiality is and now two reasons we shouldn't do it. We should reject favoritism. Now we land with what I'll call a good kind of bias. 
a good kind of bias, if this church has a bias toward those who have wealth, then um, the Christian church, when it's healthy, should have a bias to mercy. For we greatly need mercy, and we have been shown much mercy. And when we know the mercy that we have been shown, how can we not open our arms with impartiality to any sinner who walks in our door? Verse 13 is a warning. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Uh, A negative note to be sure. And you remember Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors when he taught us how to pray. Later he said, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And we don't understand Jesus to be teaching that you earn forgiveness by forgiveness, for then you would not need forgiveness. Likewise, we do not earn mercy by showing mercy, for then it's not mercy. We still need the mercy. This has to do with the matter of credibly wanting it. You can say, Lord, forgive me, but if you hold others down in bitter, blinding unforgiveness, will you demonstrate that you have no credibility in asking for it? You don't really want it. Jesus gives that illustration of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, if the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, a tremendous amount of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, that's a much smaller amount, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay. And he refused and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The same principle is applied here by way of mercy. Let me say that this matter is of extreme importance for you and for our church. This matter of impartiality. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The law by which we are judged is a law that has mercy inside it. So if we want to rewrite God's law so that it does not include acts of mercy toward others, then why should he not rewrite his plan toward us so that there is no mercy towards sinners like us. No, a chief mark of a church that has come to know the mercy of God is a church whose arms are open to everyone who needs mercy and do not the poor need it. Everyone who walks in the door impartially, which is why I think James turns to the matter of principle, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No discretion on that front. Mercy, though, be kind of a dark note to land a sermon on, don't you think? Everything I just said, that, that long parable from Jesus, I think James thought so too. I think he thought so too. And it's a good pull in the heart of a Christian when under the weight of that kind of a truth to turn upward and positive toward James's final note, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
how is it that we are here anyways? He moves from a word of warning now to a word of absolute awe and wonder. A positive note, an understatement. We came guilty to our Lord, and He has taken our guilt away by His mercy. We came poor and offering nothing to Him. Do you see that? Do you know that when you come to God, He doesn't receive you because you bring gifts and abilities, or social connections, or an education, or wealth, or a good family, or whatever else you got. And he doesn't reject you because you don't have any of those things. That's the good news. Is that we come poor to him and he gives us his riches. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church like ours that needed to hear it, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich rich. And in so many ways, James has addressed his readers in direct and sharp terms, while at the same time turning their gaze upward to their gracious, glorious, royal, uh, freedom-giving, merciful God, and called them to obey. Which is to say, That when you see Jesus for all that he is for you, you will see people for all they are to him. And you will, as he calls us to, speak and act like it. And because this law of love is a royal law, oh how we want to And because it's a divine law, how we must. And because it's a law of liberty, oh, how we can. And because it's a law that includes mercy, oh, how we can't help but obey this law. Let us give praise to God when we see it in each other's lives. And let us give thanks to God that he has worked it in our hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for this law of liberty, the gospel of your Son, through which he's fulfilled every law, and the law that turns our eyes to one another to see all that you see in those made in your image, and in brothers and sisters, those who are co-heirs, joint heirs of your kingdom. We have been called by an honorable name to great glory And we are heirs of this kingdom and we give you thanks and praise for this great truth. Make us a church that sees people with impartiality, that does not make value judgments based on all of the little calculations that we are given the rest of the week. Help us to get our calculations from the Bible. For you have come to us impartially and you have received us though we were poor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.